Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Over the past several weeks, as we've moved along through the investigation into the murder of Kiao Gove, I'm sure that a lot of you are starting to realize that we are quickly approaching the end of our investigation. Several people have started emailing and asking when we're going to move on to our next case. So before we get started today, I wanted to address this issue. The plan, as of right now, is to produce two more episodes on Season 3 after this one, and then launch into Season 4 on September the 10th. Season 4 has already been in the research and development stage. It will be a shorter season, I guess we would call it a mini-season. We're planning on 10 to 12 episodes. And that's because we're going to be covering a case that a lot of you may already know a lot about. It's a case that has been picked over and talked about by many, many, many people. But we're going to attempt to do what no one has ever done before. We're going to tap into the Truth and Justice Army, pool our resources, and take a shot at solving this case and bringing the actual killer or killers to justice. Keep your ears open over the next several weeks as we start to reveal what the case is we're going to cover I guarantee you're all going to be excited about it. As far as Jesse and Kiao's case, like I said, we have two more episodes planned. Now, the only thing that might change that is if we have a huge break in the case between now and then. But the reason we're going to go ahead and hit pause now and move on to our next case is because we've just about reached the limits of what we can do without subpoena power. Also, Jesse's case is unique from the last few cases that we worked, given the fact that the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas is also working on his case. That limits us as to what we can do and who we can talk to because we don't want to interfere with their case. At this point, we already have Troy Eldridge on the record, completely impeaching his story. We have the recorded interview with Tammy, the alibi witness that was never called. We have the recorded interview with Shauna Couples, the other alibi witness that was never called. We have Shauna's statement about Troy telling her that he had lied when he testified against Jesse. And we also found the Crime Stoppers tip that seems to be a clear Brady violation. Any one of these issues should be enough to overturn Jesse's conviction. And all of it has been turned over to Allison, who has turned it over to the CIU. And of course, we also have new DNA testing and things that are being done in the case. There are a lot of elements to the work that we've done over the past several months that should result in setting Jesse Eldridge free. 
But as you know, our primary focus here is to find out who actually killed Kiao Gove. So for these last few weeks, we're going to take a final run at trying to find the people who know what happened to Kiao. And as a part of that mission, today we're going to begin our investigation into the suspect, Ronnie Blackwell. beginning of our investigation, Ronnie Blackwell was never really considered a suspect. He was just a person of interest who may very well have had connections to the people that killed Kiao. And in fact, that may still be the exact same position that he's in right now. But since we found all these new documents in the Dallas PD's open records request that were not included in the DA's file, we're starting to find that there's a lot more to Ronnie Blackwell than we believe there to be at the very beginning of this investigation. So we're going to cover the possibility of Ronnie Blackwell being a suspect in the same manner that we did Kenneth Ray Williams. I'm first going to walk through what we know about his criminal background, and then we're going to go through chronologically his involvement in the investigation into Kiao's murder. We're going to do that by going through all of the police reports, from Detective Royster all the way through to Watts. So let's start off with Ronnie Blackwell's criminal background check. Unlike Kenneth Ray Williams, I don't have a lot of details about any of these offenses involving Ronnie Blackwell. The reason for that is that Ronnie Blackwell has been in and out of jail a lot, but never for any long periods of time. He was just recently released from one of his longest sentences, which was eight months. By my count, he has been convicted of five felonies and five misdemeanors over the last 25 years. Now, anything that happened with Ronnie Blackwell when he was a juvenile most likely would not be included in this record. Which, based on the information that we have so far, namely his mother Judy, saying that the police are always looking for Ronnie, I'm assuming that it is likely that there was a juvenile record that we can't see here. But we have no proof of that. Ronnie Blackwell's criminal background history starts in April of 1992. He has a charge on April 20th for burglary of a building, and actually there's four counts of burglary of a building there, but as we learned with Kenneth Ray Williams, that doesn't necessarily mean that he robbed four buildings. But there are four counts. And then on April 26, 1992, six days later, he has an arrest for burglary of a vehicle. Now, this burglary of a vehicle report was mentioned in the reports in the Kiao Gove investigation, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But later in 1992, Ronnie Blackwell was sentenced to boot camp and then probation for the combination of the four burglary of a building charges and the one burglary of a vehicle charge. After that, there's nothing in his criminal records until April 24th of 1999, seven years later. Ronnie was charged with assault, a misdemeanor. Then, about two months later, in June 10th of 99, he was again arrested for failure to identify, which when I looked up means that he refused to give his ID or his name after he was arrested. When trying to put these charges together, it looks like he was arrested in June for the April assault and refused to give his ID or his name. It appears from these documents that he was sentenced to 120 days for the failure to identify, 210 days for the assault. But to be transparent, it's not entirely clear if that was his sentence or if that was the maximum sentence. We don't hear from Ronnie in the criminal background check again until 2002. In November of that year, he was arrested for theft of $50. That carried a maximum sentence of 45 days. Two years later, on January 15th of 04, he was arrested for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle and was sentenced to nine months in jail. 
Now, just to keep everything in context here, at this point, Ronnie is about 30 years old. And here's another part where the report gets a little confusing. So it says an offense date of February 15th, he has that unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. But then five days later, on February 20th, he's charged with evading arrest. Now, my assumption is that it was on the 20th when they tried to arrest him for the offense from the 15th, and he evaded arrest. But again, it's not clear from the records. Then two years later, in March of 2006, he was arrested for possession of marijuana. Then three years after that, in 2009, he was arrested for burglary of a building. Then in 2015, at this point he would be 41 years old, he's arrested for theft of $500. Then in April of 2016, just last year, he was arrested and convicted of a felony theft of $2,500 and sentenced to eight months in prison. It was that charge that he was just recently released from. So that's what we know about Ronnie Blackwell's criminal history, which isn't much. He's had a lot of run-ins with the law, but nothing bad enough to send him to prison for even a year. And of all the charges, there's only one violent crime, and that would be the 1999 assault. So one thing that I'm working on doing moving forward is to try to find out what the deal was with those 1992 burglaries of vehicles and buildings. I think it would be very helpful if we can figure out who he was robbing those buildings and cars with. But for the time being, that's what we know about Ronnie Blackwell's criminal background. He's a thief. He smokes marijuana. He's been arrested for a violent crime one time, and it was a misdemeanor. Now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors, and then we're going to walk through chronologically Ronnie Blackwell's involvement into the investigation of Kiao's murder. And we're going to do so now knowing that Rosie Simons is connected to Ronnie Blackwell through her daughter, right after the break. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Before we begin to break down Ronnie Blackwell's involvement into the murder investigation of Kiao Gove, the first thing we have to do is determine exactly when the murder occurred. Now, this is something that's been widely speculated, and we're talking about a matter of minutes one way or another. 
Well, through our open records request, we finally have the document that tells us exactly when a number of events happened. Sitting in front of me, I actually have the dispatch log from Dallas PD, and it states down to the second when the 911 call was received, when emergency services were dispatched, and when they arrived on the scene. first notation we have on this report comes at 7.39 and 23 seconds a.m. on the morning of July 25, 1991. That would be the exact time when Danny Stanberry called 911. The dispatch went out to fire police and EMS at 7.41 and 46 seconds. Then the first unit to arrive on the scene, which was an ambulance, was at 7.49 and 49 seconds. So to back that up, Danny Stanbury called 911 at 7.39 a.m. Now remember, he first heard his dog barking, looked out, saw Kiao, ran through his backyard, opened his gate, across the street, into the fence, approached Kiao, tried to talk to her, realized she was unresponsive, ran back out the fence, across the street, through his gate, into his house, and called 911. I would assume that that process would take somewhere between two to three minutes which to me would indicate that he first saw Kiao's body somewhere around 7.36 a.m. And we can assume that when he looked out and didn't see anyone fleeing the scene, that the attack had happened probably a minute or so before that, about 7.35, 7.34 a.m. So we can use that information to plug it back into our timeline as far as where Kiao was that morning and when. But one thing I found interesting is, one of the Spruce High School employees, Charlotte Mosley, told police, quote, that she had observed the complainant at approximately 7.30 a.m., and she first became aware that there was a problem when she saw the ambulances at the same time summer school started at 7.50 a.m. So we've thought all along that the ambulances must have arrived at 7.50 a.m., because Mosley specifically stated that the ambulances arrived at the same time that school started. Well, as this report tells us, it turns out she is exactly right. The first ambulance reported on scene at 7.49 and 49 seconds, within 11 seconds of 7.50. But let's not forget the other part of Mosley's statement, that prior to that, at about 7.30 a.m., is when she saw Kiao walking by the school. Now, if that time's accurate, and she does say approximately, we have a serious time crunch here. If it was exactly 7.30 a.m., that would mean that Kia would have like two or three minutes to get all the way to the opposite end of the school grounds. Remember, in order for Danny Stanbury to call the police at 7.39, he first had to have time to see her, go across the street, talk to her, go back across, and call 911. So that means that he saw her body around 7.36, and his dog was barking before that, and he saw no one fleeing the scene. In my opinion, that means the attack could not have occurred any later than 7.34 four minutes after she was supposedly seen passing the high school. Now again, that 7.30 a.m. time is not necessarily entirely accurate, but if we assume that it's at least close, we definitely do not have time for Kyo to stop at home and grab a knife. And if that time is accurate, then it is another indication that there may have been a vehicle involved for her to be found at the other end of the school grounds only six minutes later. Now, given that information, let's start walking through the chronology of Ronnie Blackwell's involvement into this investigation. Now, remember, as we go through this chronology, I'm going to give you every report we have that involves Rosie Simons, Ronnie Blackwell, Judy Gonzalez, or Jesse James Swindell, because we now know that they are all connected together. 
So the first report we have was at 12.15 p.m. on the day Kia was killed. Y'all remember, that was Rosie Simons calling the police and stating that there is a strange-acting black male who typically walks around the school about the same time as Kiao. Now, we don't hear any more in the reports from Rosie Simons, or anyone connected to Ronnie Blackwell, until November 22, 1991. This report says, quote, I received a call from a Judy Gonzalez. She said on July 25th she saw three black males and one white male dragging Miss Go from a white and gray Z28 Camaro. Miss Go was struggling with them and screaming for help. She saw one of them cover her mouth with a white rag to keep her from screaming. It is unknown why she waited so long to call. Miss Gonzalez says her 13-year-old nephew was with her and witnessed this also. Now this is a report that was not in the DA's file. We never knew if Judy Gonzalez called the police or if someone else connected them, but now we know that it was Judy who called the police directly. But furthermore, we know that before this happened, before November 22nd, she had spoke to Ken Gove because she was introduced to him by Rosie Simons. Important things to note here, the story at this point is that it is Miss Gove. She's being dragged from the Camaro, and at this point, the Camaro is white and gray. Another point of reference is that in this report, Judy is saying that she was screaming for help and that they were holding a white rag over her mouth. Then it was four days after Judy spoke with police that Royster contacted Jesse James Swindell, who wrote his affidavit. His affidavit reads as follows. I'm giving this statement to Detective Kyle Royster, who has identified himself to me as a Dallas police officer and who is writing the statement for me. I was with my aunt, Mama Judy, who was driving a pickup truck. We were looking for Ronnie, my cousin. As we were coming from September Street to Grady, we saw four people dragging a woman to a white Z28 Camaro. The car had Z28 on the side. There were three black guys and one white guy. I saw them carry her and put her into the car. They then all got in with one of the black guys driving. As they took off, they hit one of the tires on the street. I don't know if they stopped on September Street or not after turning off Grady. I was over to Mama Judy's house a couple of days later, and she told me that they killed that lady on the day we saw this happen. I did tell my mama what happened before, the same day this happened. I don't know what time this happened, but it was almost day. So the first affidavit written was Jesse James Swindell. He says the Camaro was a white Z28, and he says that the three black males and the one white male were dragging the woman into the car that they all got into the car and peeled around the corner and hit a tire. Remember, at this point, Judy's statement to police was that they were dragging the woman away from the car. The next report is two days later, on November 27th. In this report, it says, quote, We drove Jesse James to the offense location so he could show us what he saw. He said that he and his aunt were in a pickup truck looking for his cousin Ronnie when they saw this. He said they were traveling west on Grady when they saw a white Camaro Z28 parked on the north side of Grady near Apache. He said he saw the suspects grab the complaint and pull her in the white car, and they drove off. He said that he told his mother that day what he had seen. Jesse also said that a couple of days later, his aunt Mama Judy told him that that lady they saw being assaulted was killed by those people. I talked with Jesse's mother, and she confirmed that she was told this by Jesse and his aunt, her sister. Pauline Pointer told me that she told her sister Judy to call the police and tell them what she had seen. She said apparently Judy never called. A written affidavit was taken from Jesse. He was also photographed. So as Royster continued his investigation, he contacted Jesse James Wendell's mother, and she confirmed that on the day it happened, Judy and Jesse told her that they saw this woman being abducted into the car. 
Now, note nowhere in any of these reports does it say anything about anyone looking for reward money. That doesn't come till later, when Watts is trying to explain away these reports. The next report is from the same day. It says Royster and Davidson met with Miss Judy Gonzalez. Miss Gonzalez stated that in July, during the time of this offense, she and her nephew Perry, that's Jesse James Swindell, observed three black males and one white male forcing a white female inside a white Z-28 Camaro. They had placed something over the woman's mouth to prevent her from screaming. She stated that her nephew had more information concerning this offense. She did not know his address, but stated that his telephone number is, and she gives his number, Ms. Gonzalez stated that she believed the offense happened between 6 and 7 a.m. So what I find interesting here is that it seems that Judy is almost saying that Jesse had a better look at the offenders than she did. And it also seems like she is not in direct contact with Jesse. She just told them, here's his phone number, give him a call, and ask him. Now, something important to note here. If Judy and Jesse are colluding on this, if she's, as has been suggested, she's trying to get reward money, I wouldn't expect her to so freely be sending the police over to talk to a 12-year-old boy. You would think she would want to be keeping him much closer to herself, maybe even being in the same room when they have these conversations. Definitely wouldn't expect her just to give the phone number and walk away. As the report goes on, Royster states that he'll be contacting Crime Stoppers to update them on this information. And as you heard in this week's Friday follow-up, the Crime Stoppers flyers did indeed say that she was abducted into a white C-28 Camaro. A week later, on December 4th, Royster and Davidson returned to talk to Mama Judy to get an affidavit. In the narrative of this report, Royster types the following. Detective Davidson and I went to obtain an affidavit from Miss Gonzalez at her home. She did provide us with an affidavit. It is believed by this detective that Miss Gonzalez did witness this offense. We now finally have a copy of the affidavit that Judy Gonzalez wrote. Quote, I am giving this statement to Detective K.W. Royster, who has identified himself to me as a Dallas police officer and who is writing this statement for me. On the day that this happened, I was riding around looking for my son. Perry was with me. At about or between 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock in the morning, I saw three black guys and one white guy carrying a lady. I think she was white. One of the black guys got something out of the trunk and put something over the lady's mouth. The car was gray, I believe, and it was either a Trans Am or a Z28 car. I was afraid to report to the police until now. Judy Gonzalez. So here we are, December 4th, 1991. Judy Gonzalez writes her affidavit, and Detective Royster believes that she did in fact witness the offense. And that's after talking to her and Jesse James Swindell. For four months, there's nothing else in the reports about Judy Gonzalez, Jesse James Wendell, and Ronnie Blackwell's name hasn't been mentioned at all other than for Judy to say that that's who she was out looking for. But four months later, on April 1st, 1992, a Crime Stoppers tip is called in. This tip had been referenced in other reports, but we didn't have it until we got our open records request back from Dallas PD. This report was not in the DA's file that I received. Although, to be clear, when I pointed this one out to Allison, she did say that she had seen it before. This Crime Stoppers tip reads as follows. Suspect, Ronnie Blackwell. Source stated that there is a reward poster in the laundromat for info of the murder of Kiao Gove. 
Source has heard people say that the suspect talks about that incident and seems to know more about it than anyone else. Source does not know the suspect. Source knows nothing about the offense. Source was not interested in money and hung up before the interview could be fully conducted. Source does not have any code number. The number was assigned after the hang-up. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So this person claims not to know Ronnie Blackwell, but know of him. And they know of him enough to know that he is often talking about this murder and, quote, seems to know more about it than anyone else. Now, it's interesting to point out that the source stated that they saw the reward poster in the laundromat, but they didn't want any reward money, and they hung up before they could get a code number. That certainly would lead me to believe that this individual thinks this information is credible. They certainly were not motivated by money to point the finger at Ronnie Blackwell. It's even more important to point out, as we said in a Friday follow-up a couple of weeks ago, that the idea that Judy came forward with her story to put suspicion off of Ronnie Blackwell is absolutely preposterous because she gave her affidavit four months before anyone had even heard his name. Five days later, we have a report from Royster, and we've heard this one before. It says that he was out looking for Judy Gonzalez, and in the second paragraph it says, it is this detective's opinion that the Crime Stoppers tip about Ronnie Blackwell could actually be Ronnie Swindell, the Gonzalez's son. It is also my opinion that Ronnie has been talking about this offense to other people. His mother witnessed this crime. I will attempt to find where Miss Gonzalez has moved. So here Royster thinks that Ronnie Blackwell may actually be Ronnie Swindell. And of course he's wrong. Ronnie Blackwell's name is Ronnie Blackwell. And he is Judy Gonzalez's son. Then there are several reports where Royster's trying to find Judy Gonzalez, and it wasn't until December of that same year, 1992, when Judy was finally tracked down again. So remember, she writes her affidavit in December. In April, the Crime Stopper tip comes in about Ronnie. Royster goes to talk to Judy and can't find her because she's moved. Apparently, nobody knows where she's moved to. But on December 21st, 1992, an officer, Ortega, finally tracks her down. He says that he was finally able to find Judy Gonzalez's new residence. He gives her street address and her phone number. And his note on the report reads simply, Judy Gonzalez retold her statement exactly the way she gave it to Kyle Royster on December 4th, 1991. So at this point, if she's lying, she was definitely able to remember whatever lie she told to Detective Royster a year before. Now, here's an interesting sidebar. You're going to hear the report here in a few minutes that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Rosie Simon said, and Ken Gove said, 
that the report she gave to Royster was different than what she told Ken Gove in his house. The question is, at what point was she lying, or was she lying in both occasions? What I find interesting is, a detective knocks on her door unexpectedly a year after she writes her affidavit, and she's able to retell her story exactly the way she gave it to Royster a year before. Compare that to me knocking on Troy Eldridge's door and him giving me a completely different version of events, or better yet, the seven or eight different versions of the story that Troy gave to police. Remember, it's hard to remember a lie. So a lot of us have been assuming this whole time that Judy told the truth to Ken Gove and then changed her story to the police. But something to consider would be, what if she was lying to Ken Gove but told the truth to Detective Royster? Could it be more likely that she was intimidated by the fact that he was a police officer and was scared enough to actually tell him the truth? Now, that report I'm referring to came on January 21st, 1993, and that's when Royster went and visited Rosie Simons, who said, quote, Mama Judy did change her story as Mr. Gove stated. So obviously, at some point, Mr. Gove had told Royster that that's not the story that she had told him. It was right about this time when Royster gave up on the case. Now, we don't hear anything else about Ronnie Blackwell until August 5th, 1993, when Detective Watts takes over the case. I've read to you this entire report before, so I'll just summarize it here. This is when Watts first goes to talk to Rosie Simons. Rosie states in this report that she doesn't really know Judy Gonzalez. She only knows her through her son, Ronnie, who would come over and visit with her daughter. Rosie described Ronnie as strange. She said that one time you'd see him with orange hair and the next part of his head would be shaved. The next paragraph is the part where a lot of people got confused about the timeline. So I'm going to read this verbatim. Rosie said that Gonzalez told her that she and her nephew were hunting for Ronnie because he had ran off again. About 2 or 3 a.m., they drove by Spruce High School and she observed a brown or tan car sitting along the curb. There were three black males and one Latin male inside the car. This next sentence is the part that many of you missed the last time I read this report. The next sentence says, Gonzalez told that she returned to the school again and observed the three black males and one Latin male dragging the complainant from the direction of the tan car. Rosie said that Gonzalez repeated the same story to Mr. Gove. So just to make that clear, Judy told Rosie that she first made a trip around the school at 2 or 3 a.m. and she came back later at the time of the attack. Rosie goes on to tell Watts that a friend of her daughter's told her daughter that Ronnie had said that he knew one of the suspects. But when Watts questioned the daughter, she was really defensive, and all she wanted to talk about was a strange black man that walked around the neighborhood. On the 13th of August, Watts goes to the high school and talks to Randy Poteet. Randy recalled the name Ronnie Blackwell, but couldn't place him. Watts then left the school and went and contacted Jesse James Swindell. At this point, no one's talked to Jesse James Swindell about this case in about two years. The report reads as follows. I requested that he return to the crime scene with me as well as give me a better statement along with a better description, getting a reluctant witness to talk. He said that he could not today because his sister was in the hospital having a baby. I questioned him just briefly and he was unsure about how many or what race the persons were he had observed. He finally said that the group was mostly white males. So this is interesting. There's something going on here. I don't think that this is an observation that someone just accidentally gets wrong. There's a distinct difference between seeing three black males and a group of white guys abducting someone. 
And if you're calling back to a memory that you actually experienced, it's a detail that you should be able to remember. It's not like the color of someone's shirt. It's the race of what sounds like the majority of the assailants. As I've gone over and over and over all of these statements, this is one thing that has stuck with me. Judy and Jesse insisted at the very beginning that we were dealing with three black males and one Latin male. But remember a couple of reports back when Judy says that she first saw the three black males and the one Latin male inside of a car at 2 or 3 in the morning. Has anyone ever considered how the hell do you see the race of four people inside of a car in an area with no streetlights at 2 or 3 in the morning? Something's hinky here. But two years later, when Jesse James Swindell was surprised by Detective Watts and he just asked him about the offense, his immediate recollection is that it was mostly white guys. The report goes on to say that he did seem certain about the vehicle he had seen, a white Z28. The vehicle had large letters on the bottom of the body stating Z28. He said that his aunt thought the vehicle was gray, but he was certain that it was white. He said that the vehicle took off real fast and spun out when it hit some water or a tire laying on the road. The final note in Watt's report here says, quote, His older brother, unknown named, slipped and said Mama Judy has told Perry that they were going to get the reward money and share it. This part, to me, could it be true? Certainly. But I don't believe it is for a second. I don't believe that Detective Watts, as persistent as he is, we've seen it with Kenneth Ray Williams, we saw it with Troy Eldridge, he is persistent and he wants information. He's standing in this house and a kid says, Mama Judy had told Perry that they were going to get the reward money and share it. I have a really hard time believing that Watts doesn't then turn around and number one, get more information and talk to the kid and at least get the child's name. That would be pertinent information if this case were to ever go to trial. Now keep in mind, timeline-wise, as far as our context, on August 13th of 1993, the scales of the investigation were already starting to tip towards Kenneth Ray Williams. Crime Stoppers tips were coming in. There's a tip that Christopher Williams said that he knew his uncle had committed the murder. And all of a sudden, Mama Judy and Jesse James Swindell were nearly as important as they had once been. The very next day, Watts tries to contact Swindell again. He wasn't home, but Watts says he spoke with the two brothers. They both told him that Ronnie Blackwell had told them that he knew one of the persons who killed the complainant. Now, this is interesting because a year earlier, Rosie Simon's daughter told Royster the exact same thing, that Ronnie knew one of the suspects. And now here is two cousins telling Watts a similar story. They went on to say that Ronnie Blackwell had been arrested that morning by the Garland police for auto theft. That would be that theft by vehicle we mentioned earlier in the show. Watts interviews Blackwell at Garland PD. This is when he gives him the name of Shane or Sean Quayle. He said that three days after the murder, a person named James told him that Quayle and him had made some money and were going to buy some dope. They were at the apartment next to Spruce when they had the conversation. Blackwell told Watts that he figured that they had killed the complainant because, quote, Quayle was driving a white Z28 with blue writing on the bottom of the vehicle, just as his cousin Perry had described to him. Blackwell said that after the complainant was killed, Quayle parked the Z28 in the parking lot of the little store across from the apartments for a month. So it's important to point out here that on August 14, 1993, over two years after the murder, this is the first time that Ronnie Blackwell is questioned by anyone. Royster never talked to him. Davidson never talked to him. 
Watts is the first person involved in this case that thought it might be important to talk to Ronnie Blackwell. It was in this report where Blackwell gave him the names of Chris Parks and Chad Nelms, and also a guy named Sammy. Now this next report, the last report that ever mentions Ronnie Blackwell, or Jesse James Swindell, or Judy Gonzalez, makes a lot more sense after breaking down the chronology of the Kenneth Ray Williams investigation. Up to this point, Watts is clearly thinking that the Z-28 lead is the strongest lead in the case. Every report, every interview, every trip he makes is all looking for the driver of this white Z-28 Camaro. When we put all these reports side by side, we discover a pattern in Detective Don Watts' behavior. Remember when we were breaking down the chronology of the Kenneth Ray Williams investigation? He is the prime suspect until Watts gets Troy Eldridge to start talking. And then, poof, Kenneth Ray Williams drops from the narrative. We find the exact same thing happens with Ronnie Blackwell. He is the strongest lead, and we have this report on August 17, 1993. Quote, I interviewed Perry at his residence and also interviewed Ronnie Blackwell again who was out on bond for auto theft. I drew a map of the area of Spruce High School. By pointing to the map, he indicated that he observed the vehicle, Z-28, midway on the street north of the school, which isn't near the location where the body was found. Now, side note here, Watts makes clear in his reports that he believes there was a secondary crime scene. He thinks the attack started somewhere else. But moving forward... Perry said that he and his aunt drove around the school and observed the female being carried by several males. They, Perry and his aunt, made the block again and looked into the Z-28, looking for Ronnie. When they did not see Ronnie, they continued their search. Perry could not say what time this occurred. He did ask Ronnie when it was that they had gone by the Simons' house looking for him. Ronnie said that the time was about 11.30 p.m. I questioned Ronnie as to what time he was located by his mother and Perry... Ronnie said that it was about midnight. Now another side note here. I don't believe for one second that Judy found Ronnie that night at midnight. If that was the case, then she is either completely bald-faced lying about searching for him that night, and if that's the case, why would she give that false information to the police? Or she confused finding her son at 11.30 at night with her searching for him all night long making a pass around the school at 2 or 3 a.m., and then another pass around 7 a.m. I don't see any way you confuse finding your son at 11.30 at night with searching for him all night long. And like I said, if she did find him at 11.30 at night, and she is lying, there's no reason to create this narrative at all. But moving forward, the report says, by what location Perry said that he observed the Z-28, and the time Ronnie said that he was located by his mother, the information about the Z-28 is not connected to this offense. This line about the Z-28 is the biggest piece of bullshit in this entire case. All the leads that have been generated, all the names Ronnie Blackwell gave him, the Crime Stoppers tips, everything we know about this lead, and because Jesse James Swindell points to a place on the map that was not where Keow's body was found, but oh, by the way, let's not forget that in his statement, he says that the car squealed out towards September and turned right on September, which is where the body was found. But because of the place he pointed to on the map, Watts says the information about the Z-28 is not connected to this offense. 
And here we find that exact same pattern of Watts's behavior. Because this report is dated August 17, 1993. And the other report we have in the file with the exact same date is the day that Watts went to the high school to interview Christopher Williams, Kenneth Ray Williams' nephew. In my opinion, Watts dropped this lead because Kenneth Ray Williams, the convicted felon, seemed like the easier target. Detective Don Watts never cared about bringing Keao Gove's murderer to justice. All he ever cared about was closing the case. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank Chris Brinkley for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah, Britta, Tammy, and Stephanie. Thank you to Desiree Dunn for printing the transcripts and mailing them off to Jesse every week. Thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.